This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Michael Clay Carey, the author of a new book, The News Untold, Community Journalism and the Failure to Confront Poverty in Appalachia. It investigates the impact of local news outlets ignoring issues of poverty. Clay is a former journalist and currently is an assistant professor of journalism and mass communication at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Clay, in your new book, The News Untold, and the subtitle Community Journalism and the Failure to Confront Poverty, in Appalachia, sort of give us a summary about what people could expect if they buy and read your book. When I decided to start working on this project, I really wanted to talk about the ways that local newspapers can lead discussion about social issues in in rural communities especially. Uh, And so I took on this project as a means to talk about that and also to talk about the importance of giving people in a community who are often unheard a voice. Uh, The book is about three communities in rural Appalachia that experience high levels of poverty and how news organizations in those three places report about or don't report about the economic need and the other problems that are associated with it. Uh, So what readers will find is that in all three of these places, coverage of poverty and homelessness and other things associated with it was virtually non-existent. And there are a lot of reasons why journalists, I interviewed journalists in all three of these places, and there are a lot of reasons why they are reluctant to write about poverty. They all acknowledge that it existed, but for various reasons, they were very hesitant to use media as a platform to really discuss that in a detailed way. And so the results of that are that a lot of kind of the dominant narratives about Appalachian poverty remain unchecked. There's a long history of poverty in the Appalachian region being viewed as an aspect of culture. You know, there's just some communities where, you know, people just don't have the human capital to pull themselves up towards something better. This is a, a really problematic way to look at poverty, but in the absence of other stories about poverty, it's, it's kind of what exists. And so at the end of the book, I make the argument that if local media can find new ways to talk about issues like poverty in a way that includes more voices and more perspectives and comes across as more of a leader in a community, then perhaps we can start to find more innovative solutions to not only poverty, but also to social alienation that exists uh, in some of these rural communities as it relates to the poor. So you're saying in, in a sentence that the local media ignores the 800-pound elephant in, in the room, 
being the economic deprivation of the area that they cover. Exactly. And, and there, there are a lot of reasons why that happens. Sometimes reporters and editors would tell me that you know, they didn't want to write about poverty because it would make individuals feel alienated or embarrassed. Uh, sometimes they didn't want to take on the issue because they thought it would be morally destructive to the community as a whole. You know, some of these places have been experiencing poverty, extended poverty over generations. And uh, one newspaper editor I interviewed told me, you know, if you keep getting these messages that beat you down and beat you down and beat you down, it becomes really hard to kind of muster the fortitude to to move so- towards something better. That that people needed a little dose of positivity sometimes, and he viewed it as his job to provide that. But in in essence, by trying to provide that, uh, it ignores the major problem where then nothing or very little is getting done to solve it. Exactly. You picked Greenberg, Pryorsville, Deer Creek to, to study. Talk to us a little bit about those three communities, where they are, what they're like, and talk about the media that covers those three communities. Sure. Well, the three community names that I used in the book were pseudonyms, uh, and all the individuals who are named in the book are given pseudonyms, uh, which was important for a couple of different reasons, especially to give people the freedom to criticize these newspapers and news organizations in their community freely without having to worry about any kind of retribution. Deer Creek, Greenberg, and Pryorsville are all in what we might broadly refer to as central Appalachia, West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, southeastern Ohio, northeastern Tennessee. They're all very rural, none of them near a a big city, and they're all among some of the poorest counties, not only in Appalachia, but in the United States. Are, are they all counties that have been plagued over the years by extractive industries? Uh, they are, um, to varying degrees. Uh, Pryorsville and Greenberg have uh, historically been uh, places where a lot of coal has been mined. Uh, Deer Creek is an interesting place. Uh, it has some history of coal, but a, a much uh, deeper and more important history of, of oil and natural gas extraction that that continues today. And it has a lot of the same effects, particularly as it relates to the unpredictability of the local job market. When oil prices are high, there's a lot of jobs. When oil prices are low, then there are no jobs. And that can change month to month, which wreaks havoc on a person's ability to expect work and to know how to budget. So it's the up and down economies. It's uh, I'm not going to move because the job's going to come back and be right. bigger and better. And, and so I'm going to stay put. Right. And people and people in Greenberg and Pryorsville kind of viewed coal the same way. Uh, Greenberg particularly is a, a place that uh, was at one time a major producer of coal in the region. Um, and, and those times are long gone. But I talked to a couple of, of people who had worked in coal in Greenberg who said, you know, it could come back. It could come back. They held out hope that that, that kind of economic heyday might return. So in these areas, are you talking about primarily ink on paper kind of newspapers? Or are you talking about a mixed media of online and, and, and actual newspapers or their local radio stations, what what do you have? Uh, 
ink on paper newspapers are important in all three of these places. Uh, in Pryorsville, there are actually two competing weekly newspapers, uh, both of which are locally owned, uh, which is increasingly unusual. Highly unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's no... Uh, there's no radio, no local news radio to speak of in any of these three places. Uh, you know, if there's television news coverage, it's usually because something bad has happened and the reporter from... Ancillary to right. a hub, uh, a, a more metropolitan hub. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, I picked these three towns in part because their local media environments are fairly different. Uh, you know, in Pryorsville, you've got you know, two newspapers that are fiercely competitive with each other, uh, that don't like each other, <laughs> that will openly talk about how much they don't like each other. Sounds like the old days. It, it is very much the old days. And, um, you know, one of the newspapers is doing is, is viewed as the superior newspaper in town. I call it the Pryorsville Post-Examiner in the book. Uh, the PPE is, is seen as the better newspaper. It's produced by people with college degrees. Uh, it has a higher circulation. It makes more money. Uh, the other newspaper, uh, the record is, it does okay, but it, it's kind of second place in the market. And and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of competition between those two newspapers to set themselves apart from the other. Uh, in Greenberg, there is a five day a week daily newspaper that is owned by a, a chain of newspapers. Uh, and there's also an upstart local news website that was founded by a person who was laid off by the company that owns the chain of newspapers. Of course. Which is, a, which is another of common course. story that we hear. <laughs> it is. Uh, and then in Deer Creek, there is a well-established weekly newspaper that is locally owned. The, the editor and publisher is also the owner of the newspaper. Uh, and there is a, a really interesting online startup there as well. It had been around for a, a couple of years at the time that I started writing the book. It is run by a person with no journalism background. He worked in computers and just decided to create this website basically as a hobby. And it blew up and became wildly popular. And so... Uh, you know, he does things like write about city council and write about local crime. Uh, and he also has done some more kind of salacious, controversial stories and rumor mongering. And people in Deer Creek had really interesting opinions about that website. Uh, you know, they, they viewed it as a place where they could get information about things that the newspaper would never, you know, the newspaper would never cover that. They'd never give us this side right. of the story. But it had a comment section that would get really ugly really fast. <laughs> uh, and it would, uh, you know, people would accuse people by name of being criminals and being corrupt. Uh, one of their favorite targets was the editor and publisher of the newspaper in Deer Creek. He would often appear by, you know, you know, this person, you know, they would use his name. Gregory is, uh, you know, he's in the pocket of the mayor. You know, they probably give, they probably pay each other off. You know, you would yeah, see the, these uh, kinds of these right. kinds of claims with no evidence posed there. So small towns become highly personal. Oh, absolutely. So one of the interesting things about each of these 
three media markets is even though they're small, there is journalistic competition in each one. People take that competition, the the seriousness with which people take that competition kind of varied, but people had options. I want to take a little different tactic with this and living in Appalachia and having relatives from uh, this area, there has always been uh, sort of the resentment uh, of people indigenous to to the Appalachian region that uh, periodically, depending on the issue or the election, uh, the big name national media come in either with their cameras or, or their recorders or their notebooks and portray us all as toothless, dirty, and stupid and unemployed and addicted now. Let's add that on, on, on top of things. So there's a resentment on how we're portrayed and all put into sort of um, – one pile or, or or one batch. Then Hillbilly Elegy came out, and there's sort of the same resentment to that. Hey, we, we aren't all like you characterize. Uh, we have entrepreneurs. We have smart people. We have economic boons in, in some areas. Uh, so is the local news – reticence in talking about poverty and economic issues? Is it somehow driven by these outside forces that we don't want to be the same as the New York Times or the Washington Post who comes in and and puts down our population? I think that there is an aspect of that. I think that is an aspect of the argument. And um, one of the newspapers that I talked to specifically made that point. He said, you know, the only time that a big newspaper will come here is if they want to get pictures of the shanty towns and the guy standing down in the corner waiting for his check to come. And I th- the refrigerator on the porch, exactly, and the, and exactly. The car on blocks. That, right. That's the stereotypical picture. So, right. And there's a desire to be a counterbalance to that, to be something that offsets that image. And I think there's a great deal of value in that. But I think that you can, you can do that and still begin to confront some of these social issues that exist in a, in a solutions-oriented way. I don't think – I think that's one of the, the perceptions that journalists in these communities had that I would really want to challenge, this idea that any story about these issues, about an issue like poverty or an issue like – drug abuse. These are always going to be negative stories that are going to be damaging to community morale. And I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. I think we can write about issues in a way that acknowledges what everybody knows, that a problem exists. But we can write about them in a way that is intended to pursue solutions and to show people that they have the ability to move within a community and make things better and to show people that there are people in the community who are moving to make things better. Uh, you know, that's not, in my view, a negative story. It's a story about an issue that is that we wish wasn't in our community. But I think you can tell that story and still 
promote positive messages about your community. In that in that regard, uh, you mentioned earlier, and it's long been a debate of whether this poverty is cultural or whether it's purely economic and based on some of the extractive industries that that we we talked about. Does that debate go on in local newsrooms, or is it um, ever talked about? In the newsrooms that – the six newsrooms that I dealt with for this book, it, it wasn't really a debate that was discussed. There was, there was a lot of acceptance, not universal acceptance, but a lot of acceptance of the idea that, well, this is just the way things are here. Uh, you know that that more cultural approach. Uh, you know, I, there was the owner of one newspaper told me that uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially said, you know, this is just this is just who we are here, and you know we tried to change, but uh, you know the Chamber of Commerce can't change it, we can't change it, government can't change it. You know, we can do things to make it better, but it's always going to revert back to. It's not an attitude that's really productive for improving people's lives on a day-to-day basis, which is something that I think a, a newspaper can and should aspire to do. Any news organization can and should aspire to do. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Is unemployment the primary issue? Because, you know, these places, unless they get coal back uh, under the promise of President Trump, uh, that industry is not going to come back. It's certainly not going to come back the way it was mm-hmm. if it comes back at all. Uh, manufacturing units are not attracted to these places because they're rather remote and, and isolated. So uh, just pure unemployment, how important is that? And, and how is that being covered, if at all? Um, I'll answer your second question sure. first. Uh, unemployment and all of these communities was basically covered once a month when the state government would say, here are the unemployment statistics for this month. And so the newspapers would sometimes just run those numbers as they were released by the state with 
little to no local context. Most of the time, that's how it was treated. Uh, unemployment and, and underemployment are really critical issues in all three of these communities and in many other communities. Uh, you know, access to not only access to jobs, but access to jobs that pay a livable wage, that provide things like health insurance uh, and you know, a stable, schedule, stable, predictable schedule are really important. And they're in really short demand uh, and really high demand in a lot of these places. Uh, you know, and, and there are a lot of other issues that are related to that that are important as well. You know, when you think about uh, equity in terms of access to quality education, when you think about access to affordable housing, you know, and, and, and some of these, you know, these are not, these are communities where the median home price is pretty low. Yeah. But still, there are communities where, you know, Section 8 housing is not prevalent. There are communities where, you know, low-income housing is hard to find. Uh, so, you know, access to low-income housing is important. Access to affordable health care is important. Uh, one of the communities uh, that I write about lost its local hospital shortly after I finished the manuscript. Uh, so there's no emergency room care for probably 25 miles from the town center. Uh, so you've got issues like that. You know, issues regarding you know, transportation become important. Uh, all of these things are tied together. And uh, you know, to, to really create long-lasting solutions, they all have to be addressed in one way or another. We talk about unemployment and we talk about uh, people and the merge between unemployment and culture. There is a reticence to leave these areas, whether, uh, and I, I can't explain it, perhaps you can, but a lot of times if you look historically, certain areas that had high unemployment or the industries left, the people left. Uh, I, I know I was born and reared in Dayton and we had a great influx from Kentucky to work in the factories during World War II and after and, and you go on up I-75 to Detroit and Toledo, same thing. Uh, uh, and, and, but people left their home to, to go where the jobs are. You don't see that very much in, in some of these areas. Why is that? Uh, there are, I think there are cultural reasons and economic reasons for that. And, and I'll, I'll share a story of someone I met in the, in the reporting that went into this book. Uh, I met a, a young woman in Greenberg who was, uh, she's in her early 20s, uh, was a single mother, uh, had, had had her child right around the time she graduated from high school, uh, had been born and raised in Greenberg and was working fast food jobs, you know, changing jobs regularly and, and just wasn't, wasn't able to take care of her, wasn't able to uh, provide for her family by herself. Uh, and so she left Greenberg and moved to a suburb of, of her state's capital, which was probably about uh, an hour and 15 or 30 minutes away. And she told me about leaving and being away for less than a year, a matter of months. And she said she had to come back 
uh, in part because she didn't have a network there to help her with her parenting issues. Uh, but it was also more expensive to live in the suburbs of her state capital than it was to live in Greenberg. Um, and there was also a cultural connection, too. One of the first things she said about move was that, you know, the, that the place just had a pull on her. I remember I can picture her saying it now, you know, this place just has a pull on you. Uh, you know, she recognized that there weren't a whole lot of economic opportunities, but Greenberg was home for her. Uh, she was happy in some ways when she was there. She felt isolated when she moved. And all those things are important in a lot of these communities. You know, there are, it's easy to, from the outside to look in and, and view these as places where there's no room for optimism and no room for, you know, to feel good about where you are. But, you know, I grew up in a little town like this. I grew up in a town where, you know, the primary, the primary job provider today is a federal penitentiary. Uh, it's a rural area. It's isolated. And, you know, it's easy to look from the outside on my hometown and say, uh, it's just a prison town. You know, mm-hmm. Why would somebody want to live there? Uh, but, you know, I, I look back on it fondly. You know, I, I left because there was no economic opportunity for me there. Uh, but I, I miss that place. And so I think that, you know, the practical economic reasons are important, but there is also this desire to, to feel like you belong somewhere. And when you're from a place, especially some of these small towns where people tend to know each other fairly well, it's easy to feel like you belong. And that's important to all of us, and we all want that. Are those issues being covered? The issues of, that, of what, out, like, out-migration right, and return? Right, that, that we just talked about? Um, not extensively locally. I think I think that it would be a tough sell for me, say, as a reporter in, right. in Greenberg to right. go to my editor and say, I want to do this story. Because it's – so many of these newspapers uh, and, and news organizations are kind of challenged by the routines of journalism. Right. You know, we have to cover right. the city council. We have to cover the county commission. We have school to cover board. the school board. We have to cover the Pot crime blotter. <laughs> crime blotter. We have to cover – we have to write about the, the road projects. Right. And, you know, those things will consume time and, and print news hole. And, and they're – they do that because, in part, they're important. It's important for people to know what their local government is doing. It's important for people to know how decisions are made. It's important for those institutions to be monitored. And in these towns, there's really nobody else to do it but these news organizations. But it's also really easy, and I can tell you this from experience, having worked as a community journalist, right. it's really easy for that to become, those machinations to become your routine. And so, you know, we're going to cover city council, and I'm going to cover the county commission, and I'm going to make the cops calls, and I'm going to write about this public works process, and I'm going to write the story about the fair, and I, I'm going to do this profile of this new business person. The preview of the high school football team. Exactly. Yeah. And so I get through all those things that I feel like I have to do, and then my week is over. There's no time, no money, no resources. Exactly. And that's another challenge that, that, that these community news organizations face is – to take on projects like the ones that I write about in the book, you've got to sacrifice something that you're doing. And the argument that I make is that you know there are thing there are aspects of that routine 
that can perhaps be sacrificed because there are other things that a journalist can do that will do more to help mm-hmm. move their community forward. One last area I want to talk about, and that is drug addiction and the, the uh, epidemic that we're having in Appalachia, other places too, but especially in Appalachia. Is that being covered by the, the local news media? And if so, why is that being covered and economics not being covered? I think drug addiction is covered purely from a criminal, I shouldn't say purely, primarily from a criminal justice perspective. That is... So-and-so got busted. So-and-so at a meth plant. (laughs) So-and-so Right. So-and-so was in court. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the really interesting conversations that I had with a reporter about this particular issue uh, happened in Greenberg. She was uh, a reporter who had been at the newspaper maybe a year, year and a half, uh, early 20s, single mother, uh, dealt with kind of living on the edge of being able to provide herself. You know, she had a little more family infrastructure, and, and so it, you know, it wasn't dire for her. But she knew what it was like to struggle. And she covered uh, one of her beats was crime in court. And so she went to court, and she said, you know, you go to court, and you see these people uh, come before a judge. You know, none of them have enough money to hire an attorney. Uh, none of them have the resources to to seek treatment, and so they're just kind of you know, they're put in jail and they serve their time and they come back out and they go in an addict, they come out an right. Addict. Their, their life yeah. has you know their their time in jail hasn't really changed right. them significantly, and so that is that is covered and it's acknowledged and people acknowledge that. But but to think about approaching addiction as a bigger story about you know, the social conditions of a community uh, is not something that happens in these communities much, if at all. Uh, and again, a part of that comes back to the fact that it's outside of the routine. And part of it also comes to a concern that local journalists expressed about putting people on the spot in their community. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I, I would ask in all these communities, I would ask journalists, you know, do you interview poor people about poverty? And the answer was universally no. And one of the reasons was, well, I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want people right. to to see them in the newspaper and, and know they're poor. Single and, them out. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there's also there's often this assumed uh, or this assumption that journalists made that people – who dealt with poverty wouldn't want to talk about it. Uh, I talked to some people who said they would be more than willing to talk about it, some people who had been involved in you know, talking about their own experiences in a way that they felt like was not an exploitation of them, but was them being able to contribute to a bigger discussion about what it meant to be unemployed, what it meant to be uh, on welfare and food stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some of that exists, too, with the prospect of covering addiction. Uh, you know, we see some of those outside news organizations you discussed earlier right. will come in and they'll they'll take a picture of an addict and they'll interview that person and they'll talk about their experience. 
Uh, and I think the local journalists who are going to be tied into that community after that story is done, are they view that as a much different proposition, a much more difficult thing to justify in their own minds, uh, even if the person would do it willingly. Last question. You talked about optimism. Are you optimistic any of this will change, or did you just give a snapshot of what is and you're going to leave it there? I feel like I have to be optimistic about it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, there are things we can do to chip away at some of these problems. Do I think a news organization by itself can turn a whole community around? Uh, it's difficult, but there is precedent for it. Uh, in my book, I write about some uh, things that the local newspaper in Tupelo, Mississippi did in the uh, mid to late 20th century to turn Tupelo's economy around. Uh, and an important part of what happened in Tupelo was the newspaper got out of its routine. It stopped viewing itself as just an objective stater of you know, the facts. Here's, my, here's our chronicle of what happened in Tupelo this week. The newspaper, it continued to do that, but it also viewed itself as a real institutional leader in the community and did things that had little to do with news production in order to help people understand the causes of some of the economic problems in Tupelo and how they could, how they could be turned around. Um, and doing those things were very counter to ideas like journalistic objectivity that, right. that are very sacred to, to a lot of people who work in media. But at the end of the day, the folks in Tupelo benefited greatly from the newspaper's efforts to, uh, to build up the capacity to aspire to something better in Tupelo. And if you go to Tupelo today, it is much better for having had that institution in its community. And so I was turned on to the Tupelo story at the end of my reporting, after I had long after I had left Greenberg and Pryorsville and Deer Creek as, as a kind of a regular presence in those communities, I was interviewing a community development professional in rural eastern Kentucky uh, for the appendix of the book where I make some suggestions right. for, for journalists. And he said, hey, have you ever read this thing about Tupelo? I had never heard of it. And he emailed me a link. And it is such a compelling story. And it's something that I would recommend local journalists read because it shows us that in a, in a community that is small and tight-knit, it is possible for change to happen. Not change overnight, but change over a generation, certainly. Um, you know, Tupelo is evidence of that. Now, is it easy? No. It's a lot of work. And it requires us to rethink some things that are central to the, the journalist ethos, objectivity being one of those things, detachment being another. Um, but it was worthwhile in Tupelo, and I think if we can start to encourage other news organizations to begin to 
dip their toes into that kind of thinking. I think, I think that positive change is possible. The book is The News Untold, Community Journalism and the Failure to Confront Poverty and Appalachia. The author, Michael Clay Carey. Clay, thank you so much for talking with us. It was a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Today, we've been talking with Michael Clay Carey, a former journalist and author of a new book, The News Untold, Community Journalism and the Failure to Confront Poverty in Appalachia. He talks about the impact of local news outlets ignoring poverty at home. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, at Stitcher, or at NPR One. You can also find Spectrum on the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.